Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Ethan Ennels and I'm a health journalist, which means I spend my life asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week we're asking, is the new breast cancer wonder drug worth the side effects? As always, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or a comment, you can tweet us at MedMinefield. Earlier this month, the NHS made a major announcement. Thousands of healthy women in England would now be offered a drug that could cut the risk of breast cancer in half. The drug is called anastrozole and it is being offered to all women who are at moderate to high risk of breast cancer. That means they either have a family history of the disease or they have a genetic mutation which makes them more likely to go on to develop breast cancer. The drug works by limiting the body's production of estrogen and for that reason it is only given to postmenopausal women. And the news obviously was met with massive outpourings of positivity. Breast cancer affects 50,000 women every year in the UK, making it the most common cancer in the country. It also kills 11,000 women every year. So any drug which can cut the risk of this disease occurring in half is surely unfettered good news. The problem is there are some downsides to the drug. Quite a few, in fact. Studies suggest that around half the women who take it will experience some uncomfortable and even painful side effects. Anastrozole's documented side effects include joint and muscle pain, arthritis, bone pain, vaginal and vulval soreness, hot flushes, headaches and depression. It also increases the risk of the bone thinning disease osteoporosis, meaning patients need to be constantly monitored for the condition. Despite these risks, doctors say they have already been inundated with women requesting more information about anastrozole. One of those doctors is our regular columnist, Dr. Philippa Kay. Philippa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Philippa, this week you wrote an article in the Mail on Sunday about the new guidance on anastrozole. Can you talk me through your first reaction when this news was announced earlier this month? So I've been a cancer patient myself. I've had bowel cancer, not breast cancer. And I know how desperate... I was for anything that would have stopped me getting bowel cancer and how when I think about my kids, for example, because I have a gene which was then found to increase my risk, I would do anything and take anything, (laughs) I think, um, in order to prevent my kids having to go through what I went through. And so whenever I see something about prevention, my heart leaps with joy and goes, yes, something for prevention. But actually, you need to look deeper we need to look underneath the headline at the study itself because those conversations are always about risks versus benefits and quality of life has to always be in there so I had a personal connection as to why I um, leapt at it but it's really clear from patients and from the messages that I've been receiving on social media that this is definitely something that people are interested in and if we are interested we need to be informed so that we can make informed choices What I thought was particularly interesting is the fact that this isn't necessarily a brand new announcement, right? 
Yeah. So the piece of information is about a drug called anastrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor. And what they do is they stop your body converting testosterone to estrogen, which is how estrogen is made. And we have been using these drugs for a long time. We've been using them for treatment of um, breast cancer to stop recurrence. So not occurrence, something happening in the first place, but recurrence, something coming back. But actually, it's been in the guidance, I think, since about 2017, that these medications could be used for prevention, but off license. Now, doctors do use medications off license all the time, but it, a new study um, came out a few years ago talking about how effective anastrozole um, could be in regards to prevention. And the MHRA um, have changed how we can use this medicine in the hope that this will encourage more people to come forward and in the hope that more doctors would then prescribe it. As I understand it, the uptake was quite low prior to this. Yeah, the uptake was low. And to be honest, it's not clear to me and it will be really interesting to see how much the uptake goes up. What I think the what might happen, and you know, this is putative and I'm speculating and I don't know, but what I imagine would happen is that there will be more conversations in the GP surgery about am I at moderate risk? Am I at high risk? Should I be referred on to a clinic? And then in clinic, more conversations about genetic counselling, um, if that's applicable, if that's what somebody wants, and about options. So I think that there's more than one outcome here. It doesn't necessarily mean that this story means that more people get on an astrozole, though that might happen and probably will happen. But also, how many more people might be on the high-risk screening programme? Because they've thought about this in a way that they haven't thought about this before. So our outcomes don't just have to be how many people are on this drug, but can also be how many people are now doing something in relation to that higher risk that they weren't doing previously. And, and you mentioned that you're already picking up the fact that GPs are hearing more from patients already asking about an astrozole. Yeah, so from my colleagues um, and discussion, definitely it's something that's come up. And people, you know, patients bring in um, bits of the newspaper or things that they've printed out from Google all the time. And that's part of general practice. And sometimes that means that I have to go and look something up, which is fine. And sometimes it's something that I had already known about and we have a conversation about it. And people are often worried about coming in clutching a piece of newspaper. Um, it never bothers me. It just means that you and I are on the same team, team trying to do what's best for you. But you, you were moved to write this piece because you believe that more attention needs to be paid to the side effects of this drug. Because while this drug is obviously very effective at reducing the risk of cancer, that has a trade-off, if I'm correct. Right. So I was wanted to write the piece because the headline sounds wonderful. An astrozole could decrease occurrence of breast cancer in postmenopausal women at high risk by half. Could potentially prevent 2,000 cases a year. That sounds brilliant, but you need to read the next line, which is about the potential side effects of this medication. And those can be very difficult to manage. And I have lots of patients with breast cancer. Breast cancer is the commonest um, cancer in, globally, actually. One in seven women in the UK will get it. It can affect all genders. And so that means that we see lots of patients who are on anastrozole after they've had surgery or chemo or radiotherapy or whatever it is that they've had. And the drug can have, not always, but it can have very difficult side effects. And the reason for that is that it stops any and 
all production of estrogen. So if you are in um, after the menopause, you still produce some estrogen, much less than before, but some, and you make it generally from mostly from fatty tissue, from adipose tissue. And once you take an astrazole, those levels will go to zero. And that means that you might have um, significant menopausal symptoms, hot flushes, headaches, sweats, but also there's a real impact on your bone health. And when you're on an astrazole after treatment, we have to do a DEXA bone scan at the beginning. We do them regularly. Um, it can increase your cholesterol. It often has really bad or difficult symptoms related to genitourinary syndrome of the menopause. So dry, itchy, sore, vulva, vagina, burning sensation in the vagina, painful sex, recurrent urinary tract infections. And lots of women find those very difficult to tolerate to the extent that some women will come off an astrazole because of the difficulty tolerating those side effects. And so forced, not all women will get them. And if you don't get them and you're happy with it, marvellous. But I think that it's important that women go into this conversation armed with that knowledge, especially so that they can then go and talk to their doctors about it and say, how else can I manage this? So for example, if we are talking about the genitourinary syndrome of the menopause symptoms, maybe you will be relieved by some good lubricant and some vaginal moisturizers. Maybe you might tolerate vaginal estrogen and depending on on what's going on often that generally is allowed but we need to be having these conversations it's not as simple as take this there are no side effects you take it for five years and done we need to be informed there are other options right there are other estrogen limiting drugs which do the same thing but work in a slightly different way and patients can be switched onto a, a different version of an estrogen if that's correct there are various different aromatase inhibitors, but I wonder if you're talking about tamoxifen, which is like an estrogen blocker. Now, the spokesperson, um, my understanding from this piece of research said that from their research, the anastrozole seemed to be tolerated better than tamoxifen. Mm. Anecdotally, in my surgery, people seem to to tolerate anastrozole worse than tamoxifen. However, we're all individuals and I can't look at you and say, oh, you're definitely going to get this symptom. 10 out of 10 bad, or you might only get this symptom 2 out of 10 bad. We can't tell until we try. And for many women, it may be that the knowledge that they are doing everything that they can to decrease that risk is worth any side effects that they have. And for other women, it's not. And I think that it's also important to recognise that this is talking about use in postmenopausal women. It is not talking about cancer that people are getting in their 30s and 40s. So when you read that headline and you think, marvellous, quick, I know I should be on it right now and I'm 25, that's not what we're talking about here. If you're too young to take this drug or perhaps you don't want to take it because of the possible side effects, whatever options are there, what can you do to limit your risk of breast cancer? So there are things that everybody can do to decrease their risk of breast cancer irrespective of whether they're at the background population risk or at a much higher risk for whatever reason, family history, genes, whatever. Um, the first is that exercise has been shown to decrease occurrence and recurrence after you've had breast cancer. Um, alcohol is very strongly linked to breast cancer. There is no safe amount of alcohol that you can drink in terms of breast cancer, but the more that you drink, the higher your risk is. So stopping drinking, smoking, um, exercise, those are things that everybody can do. 
if you know that you are at a higher risk and if you're not sure what you need to do is go to your GP armed with your family history of breast cancer so who had it in relation to you how many people had it and how old they were when they had it but also ovarian cancer also if you're of Jewish ancestry because we know that some genes um, are more prevalent the BRCA gene is more prevalent in the Jewish community um, and depending on your risk you might be referred to the high risk breast cancer program and within that you might be offered genetic counselling um, and screening if that's something that you want but let's say that you're at high risk and you don't want to have genetic counselling you might be offered to go into the high-risk screening program. And that might mean that you start having mammograms at 40, not at 50. Or it might mean that you start having MRI scans from 30 because mammograms aren't great under the age of 40 because the breast tissue is so dense um, before the menopause. So there are different things that we can do. In terms of treatment, if you are at um, high risk, then depending on your age, it might be something like an astrazole. Sometimes we use tamoxifen and sometimes people will consider having a mastectomy and potentially also an oophorectomy where you remove the ovaries as well. So we have options, but we need to talk about them all. Thanks, Philippa. We'll come back to you at the end of the episode for your final thoughts. But first, joining us now is Anne Watkins, who was forced to come off an astrazole after only five months because she believes it had a major impact on her physical and mental health. And thank you for joining us. You're welcome. And can you talk us through how you ended up going on to an astrazole? In October 2020, I went for routine mammogram. They spotted something which I couldn't feel, went in. Same day I had the diagnosis of breast cancer, I was also dumped with osteoarthritis, dead bone and cysts in both my hips. Mm. So November 2020, very, very quickly, went in, had a lumpectomy. They removed three lymph nodes and they also sent a tissue sample away for an oncotype test. December 2020, had a phone call from the oncology team who said my Oncotype score was only 11, which put me firmly in the low reoccurrence bracket. Also meant no chemotherapy, just radiotherapy. And they started me on the anastrozole in December. And how did they explain the drug to you? What did they say it was meant to do? So in layman's terms, because the the cancerous lump was an oestrogen-fed one, The tablets were to reduce the oestrogen in the body to stop it being fed, basically. So to help prevent a reoccurrence. Right. So you just take it. And that's when the issue started, (laughs) big time. How quickly did they start and, and what were they? Within two to three weeks, I was already taking Cocodamol for hip pain. Within three weeks, I'd gone from using a stick to using crutches. The pain in my hips was, oh God, I can't describe it. It was horrendous. I spoke to my doctor. I then ended up starting not only with Cocodamol, Gabapentin and Naproxen just to try and help with the hip pain. Didn't seem to do a lot of good. Just everything went horribly wrong. I started to get very sort of low mood and I would actually find I was crying for no reason and 
that's not me. That's not my my sort of makeup. I've I've never been one to to feel down. And with the pain in the hips, I actually got to a point where I could have walked out of my front door and gone under a bus. Gosh, I was so sort of low, and it was just something, anything to try and stop it all. At what point did you begin discussing whether you could come off the drug? Well, I did give it a fair shot because I think I gave it till the April and just thought, well, you know, it could be teasing troubles, give it a a few weeks to see if it all levels out, but it, it didn't. So I did speak to the hospital and they did say then to come off it and take a month off, see what happened and then to speak to them again. So I came off it, and probably within a week, the hip pain was still bad, but not as bad as it had been. The depression lifted. I was more able to cope with everything else. So I then phoned them and said, it has made a big, big difference coming off it. They then started me on another tablet, eczema stain, to do exactly the same to suppress the estrogen. And I had similar issues with that. So I was on that about three months, came off it. Then they started me on letrozole. Same issues, tiredness, everything was horrendous. So I stopped taking the letrozole and I made a conscience decision. I did speak to the hospital and I said I would not take any more tablets, any more medication until my hips were done because I just couldn't cope with both. You're essentially looking at a decision, right? Yeah. Between trying yeah. to reduce your risk of cancer recurring, but also life trying to... Life and death, yeah. Yeah, life and death, but also quality of life, you know, living a life where you're comfortable yes. and not in pain. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about what making that decision is like? It must be tough. It is very, very difficult, but I couldn't live life as I was. I'd got no life. I couldn't go out. I couldn't go shopping. I couldn't walk. I just sort of was festering almost, sitting in the house. In some ways, it was a no-brainer. I needed to get at least a bit of my life back. I was going to say, and obviously a lot more women are now going to be offered these drugs. What advice would you give to them? I think they need to have faith in their doctors because you can start taking it fine, but within a very short time, you can be down a very, very deep black hole and it sort of catches you before you know you're there, if that makes sense. Mm. And if you're down at the bottom of that hole, it's a hell of a job to get yourself out of it. I would actually not want my daughter to take it at the moment. I mean, again, it would be her personal decision. It, it's a very difficult decision. I think if I knew then what I know now, I don't think I would have started taking it. And But I am lucky that I'm in the low reoccurrence bracket. So possibly that has made my decision slightly easier. I think we're all on the, the sort of knife edge and it just depends which way you jump or which way you pushed. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. 
It's really important to say that not all patients have a tough time on this drug like Anne did. Many have no side effects at all and go on to live healthy and cancer-free lives. One of those patients is retired journalist Liz Carnell, who says without Anesthesol, she would not be here today. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Can you talk us through how you ended up on the drug? Yes. In 2011 or 2012, I was diagnosed with advanced breast cancer, which was a bit of a a shock to me because I'd had clear mammograms only 18 months before. Anyway, I had the usual uh, sort of treatment. I had a mastectomy, chemotherapy, uh, radiotherapy. Um, And then I was offered an astrazole to take for five years um, in the hope that, um, you know, that would stop me having any further problems. Uh, So I was quite happy to do that. And were you warned that there were potential side effects which could come of taking it? I can't actually remember if I was told about any side effects, but, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a retired journalist. I would have looked them up online, I'm quite sure. But actually, I was very pleasantly surprised. I didn't have any uh, problems, but that could have been down to the way I was taking it. If I have tablets to take, I often take them at night. So my theory is that you sleep off the worst side effects at night. And how long were you taking the pills for? Well, I took it for five years initially, and then, because I was a bit paranoid about it, I asked if I could stay on it. So they said, well, you can stay on it for another five years. There's probably not really much point because you it has a lasting effect anyway. So anyway, so I took it for another five years. We've run out last December. And then I asked if I could carry on taking it because I didn't get any side effects, and it seemed to be a sensible thing to do. And I was told, no, I couldn't. So I said, well, I might have to source it from abroad or something like that. I mean, it was a bit ridiculous me to say that really but anyway I had a consultation with the consultant at Harrogate Hospital who was excellent in explaining you know that I wouldn't get any great benefit from carrying on taking it um, that all the benefits were there in place. Why were you so keen to keep taking it? Well, I think you once you've had cancer and mine was was pretty advanced, I think you're just a little bit paranoid and in terms of anastrozole, obviously a lot more people are going to be offered it now. What would you say to people yeah. who are worried about the side effects? Well, I would say try it because you can always stop taking it, can't you? I mean, it's just one tablet you take a day. And if you get side effects, I've looked at the side effects since I knew that we were going to be talking about this. And um, I mean, most of them I haven't haven't even had. Um, yes, I've put on a little bit of weight, but then, you know, I've become a granny in the last five years. So I'm out and about. Um, with my granddaughter as a family, having lots of lovely meals out and things like that. And I wouldn't have seen that without having taken all the treatments that I've had. No. Do you worry that you wouldn't be here without the drug? Yes, I do. I, I, I think I was wise to take it. And I, I don't think it would have been offered to me unless there had been a clear benefit. I mean, originally when I was diagnosed with this form of cancer and the, the severity of it I had, I had a 20% chance of living 10 years well, I'm now into my 11th year and I haven't yet had any recurrence, touch wood. So I I do think that it probably has had some effect. And as I say, you know, not everybody gets side effects. I used to get side effects from lots and lots of different tablets. So I was a bit a little bit wary about taking it. But, I, I, you know, I've been pleasantly surprised. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So we've heard now from two patients who have had very different experiences on this drug and had to come off it because of the impact on her physical and mental health. 
Whereas Liz had no problems at all and says she wouldn't be here to see her granddaughter without this drug. So I, I want to bring Dr. Philippa Kay back now to ask her one final question. Dr. Kay, what would you say to a patient sitting in your surgery today who, who asks about a national and wants to know whether it's right for them? What I would say to somebody in this situation is that everything in medicine, everything in life is a balance of potential risks and side effects versus potential benefits. And that is going to be different in every person. And it is an individual discussion that you will have with your doctor and potentially with you know your family and yourself to come to what is the right balance of risk and benefit for you. And wherever that scale tips, it is okay to also understand that if that changes, then you don't have to stay on something forever or you can choose to start something later as your own personal risk balance scale changes. But we are all individuals and this needs to be an individualised conversation. Dr Kay, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this week on Medical Minefield. You can read all about this and other health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in newspaper format or the Mail Plus app or mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back with another episode next week. See you then. <laughs>